You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The U.S. Office of the Director of National Intelligence has released an appreciation of the goals of election interference among three principal U.S. adversaries, Russia, China, and Iran. Anomaly offers a look at the ransomware-as-a-service market with its research on smog. The CyberWire's Rick Howard continues his exploration of incident response. Andrea Little-Limbago from Interos on cyber regionalism. And the tangles that need to be untangled in the TikTok affair with a deadline looming less than a month from now. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, August 10th, 2020. The U.S. Office of the Director of National Intelligence on Friday released a statement on election interference. NCSC Director William Evanina says that Russia, China, and Iran are all interested in various forms of interference. Briefly, China dislikes President Trump, whom it regards as unpredictable, and wants him out so that he can't, in Beijing's view, continue to damage Chinese interests. Iran also dislikes the incumbent and sees the prospect of his re-election as likely to mean increased pressure on the Islamic Republic and pressure that would be designed to bring about regime change in Tehran. Iran also has a more general interest in undermining U.S. institutions, the statement says. Russia has been busy denigrating former Vice President Biden, whom Moscow sees as dangerously connected with Ukraine, and with the Obama administration's disapproval of Russia's armed, slow-motion reengorgement of that country. He's also seen as part of an anti-Russian establishment. So China and Iran trend blue, Russia red. The returns from Pyongyang aren't in yet. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Director Christopher Krebs commented on the ODNI statement, praising the intelligence community for its contributions to transparency, declassifying and sharing intelligence in ways CISA thinks likely to contribute to election security. Director Krebs said, quote, We have long said Russia and other nation-states are targeting our elections. We knew this to be true in 2016. We know it's true today, and we know they will continue to attempt to interfere. While motives may vary, one thing is consistent. They are attempting to interfere in our democratic process. End quote. Security firm Anomaly this morning published its analysis of smog ransomware, recently hawked in criminal-to-criminal markets as a ransomware-as-a-service offering. Simple and lacking some of its competitors' functionality, Smog offers a clean user interface, tech support, and a respectable range of ransomware services, from encryption to payment to decryption. Customers are forbidden from infecting targets in the Commonwealth of Independent States, CIS, the former USSR, but that can be accounted for by its hosting on a forum that prohibits operations against the CIS. 
the exclusion isn't decisive evidence of CIS origin. Wherever smog came from, it probably didn't emerge from the English-speaking world. The threat actor's original posts were in non-native English, legitimately broken English, not the phony, facetious lingo of, for example, shadow broker ease, and the proprietors advertised at the time for an English-speaking developer. The English in the dashboard and the ransom note are much better. So halting English, and so probably not from an Anglophone country, although recent expertise with secondary education in, oh, let's just pick any country at random, the U.S., gives one a little bit of pause. Smog seems to be a market failure. Its proprietors have been led to offer it at a discount during a trial period, and in mid-May, the forum that had hosted the offering froze the threat actor's activities for evidently failing to deposit $8,000 in escrow. The research is interesting for the insight it provides into the workings of the cyber underworld. According to NPR, TikTok is considering litigation against the U.S. government in the hope of overturning last week's executive order that would kick the social platform out of the U.S. entirely. A suit could be filed in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of California as early as tomorrow, and NPR speculates that the grounds of TikTok's challenge would be that the president's findings of fact are thin, that the order violated due process, and that, moreover, he lacks the authority to do what he did. Such a suit seems unlikely to succeed on any of these grounds, and TikTok can't count on much political support. The executive order is directed against TikTok as a threat to users' data and as an actual or potential tool of Chinese intelligence. Bipartisan suspicion of Chinese data collection is now so deep that it will be difficult for TikTok to maintain, plausibly, that it wouldn't share user data with Beijing's intelligence and security services, especially when Chinese law seems to require that companies based there do so on demand. In any case, the U.S. Senate last Thursday unanimously voted to ban TikTok from all government-issued devices. Microsoft's possible TikTok acquisition would be technically challenging, Reuters reports. TikTok shares a significant amount of code and resources with its ByteDance corporation sister Doyin, a social platform available only in China. Carving TikTok out from its dependence on such shared resources is likely to be not impossible, but surely difficult. Doing so without damaging what observers think is TikTok's distinctive advantage, its recommendation engine that meretriciously keeps users coming back for more, is part of that challenge, although the engine itself is believed to be unique to TikTok and not shared with other platforms. Another challenge the mooted acquisition faces is that it requires a geographical disentanglement as well. Microsoft is said to be considering acquiring not TikTok as a whole, but only its operations in four of the five eyes, the U.S., Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. There apparently are or have been other suitors for TikTok. The Wall Street Journal says that Twitter has been in talks with the ByteDance-owned social platform, the House of Dorsey is viewed as a dark horse competitor. It doesn't have Microsoft's cash, for one thing, and so any acquisition would have to be highly leveraged. On the other hand, of course, Twitter's already in the social business game, so it's got that going for it. CNBC thinks Netflix should look at TikTok because the movie and television service's big competitive threats aren't so much direct competitors like Disney+, Plus, but rather what Netflix calls substitution threats— that is, other ways of spending your time receiving amusement, 
which apparently come down to gaming, watching other people game, and looking at stuff on your phone. So, kids, if you're so taken by the Fortnite Charleston, please put the controller down, get up off the couch, and do some dancing on your own. And it is my pleasure to welcome Rick Howard back to the show. Rick Howard is, of course, the CyberWire's chief analyst and also our chief security officer. Uh, And he is the host of the CSO Perspectives podcast, which you can find over on CyberWire Pro. And uh, this week, Rick, you are continuing your exploration of incident response. Uh, Share with us uh, where you're headed today. That's right, Dave. And uh, we spent the last two episodes talking about that. And, you know, in a nod to the old adage, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Okay, (laughs) I, I may be the exception to the rule because I think I may have learned something new this week. Now, okay. Okay. It's a shocker. I know. I think I know everything. <laughs> but <laughs> so when I invited uh, some of the CyberWire's pool of experts to sit around the hash table with me this week and we discussed incident response, I expected that we would be talking about some of the technical things that the InfoSec team had to consider during a crisis. Hmm. But what every hash table expert jumped to immediately was how do you plan and execute the escalation process? How do you get everybody into the groove about what's going on? Because you know, Dave, hmm. uh, at a certain point, you are no longer investigating a potential breach, but managing a company crisis due to a real honest-to-goodness compromise that hmm. may materially impact your organization. Yeah. So when that happens, you get all kinds of people coming in to help. And I'm using, you know, air quotes around the help part here, like, you know, (laughs) the CIO and then the IT team and the lawyers and the risk people and the business continuity people and the business unit general managers. And the question is, how do you keep that bag of often differing viewpoints all moving in the same direction in times of high stress and no time to think about it? Hmm. And, you know, I've worked on this problem for many years, and it turns out, uh, like most things in cybersecurity, there is a framework for this. So have you ever heard of the DACI model before? I don't think so. So this it's a decision-making framework. Okay, It was developed by the Intuit company. Uh, they improved an earlier version of it called the RACI model. That's RACI with an R. Hmm. The DAISY acronym spells out what it does. So D as in the driver. This is the person who organizes the potential decisions. A, he, that's the approver. This is the one making the decisions. C is the contributors. These are the people doing all the legwork to figure out what we need to do. And I is the informed, the, the people that will be impacted by whatever decisions we make. And it turns out this is something you can use for all kinds of big projects, but especially incident response. And one of the experts at the hash table this week is Steve Winterfeld. He is an old Army buddy of mine and is currently the advisory CISO for Akamai. Hmm. Uh, but he is a huge advocate of the DACI RACI model. I think one of the best tools out there to to map out those roles and responsibility is a RACI. And a RACI, if you haven't seen one, is a spreadsheet that talks about um, on the left who it who is going to be doing it on the top, what is going to be done, reverse those if you want, and then you're going to talk about you know. Is this person for this task responsible, accountable, consulted, or informed? When I build my RACI, only one person can be responsible. Uh, Multiple people can be accountable, consulted, or informed. 
And then, you know, you broke that out to, to different stakeholders for, you know, legal and public relations and, you know, leadership and, and all of these. And then, and, you know, deciding if there is a breach and uh, deciding to go public and making the public announcement. So that's just a way to organize everything. So in one graphic, you can tell who's supposed to do what. All right. So there you have it. I've been trying yeah. to manage the escalation process my entire career and didn't know that a framework even existed. So there you go. Even an old dog can learn new things. <laughs> well, good, good, well, congratulations. Uh, I'll give you a nice little scratch behind the ears there for you, Rick. But how does a framework like this also help keeping people in their lanes? Because I can imagine in, the, in an emotional situation like this, like you said, you put air quotes around help. And I think part of this has to be the discipline for people to to contribute in the ways that they're trained and, and their areas of expertise, despite having the impulse to want to help out with everything. Yeah, it, it, and it, it does, right? And it helps out in a number of different ways. Uh, during the crisis, you don't have to be remembering, you know, what you said you were going to do two years ago or the last time you thought about it. It's a hmm. simple spreadsheet, so you can just see who's responsible for everything. It's also really good for exercises, right? When you practice this, uh, I guarantee you that what you thought was going to happen is not going to happen during the exercise. So you bring that in, the DACY chart in, and say, oh, uh, we thought it was going to be this. Now it's going to be this other thing. So it's a way to keep it fresh and um, on everybody's mind. So, yeah, I wish I would have had it like 10 years ago. My life would have been easier. <laughs> <laughs> right. Fair enough. Well, it's uh, CSO Perspectives. It's part of CyberWire Pro. You can check it out on our website, thecyberwire.com. Rick Howard, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using Identity Orchestration, 
Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Andrea Little-Limbago. She is the Vice President of Research and Analysis at Enteros. Uh, Andrea, it's always great to have you back. Um, I wanted to touch today on uh, this uh, pattern we're seeing when it comes to regionalism and uh, sort of contrast that against the... You and I have talked about this notion of the splinter net of, of nations sort of breaking away from the, the global internet and putting a, a virtual wall around themselves. Um, where are we finding ourselves these days when it comes to those two elements? Yeah, and thanks for having me. It's always fun to chat with you. So we're, we're seeing the, div the divisions continue to grow, is, would be the, the simplest way to put it. And hmm. it really is, you know, that the splinter net for a while was something that, you know, it was almost one of those things that you, you know, we, we thought about was something, a future component, but you know, what really is going on? I mean, I mean, it's really already here. And, and whether you think about, you know, how certain websites look or what you have access to, depending on where you sit is only, you know, one component of it. It's really where we're seeing it going is even more so into well beyond what data you have access to and what you can explore into, you know, what the tech stacks are, are going to be built on. And that's hmm. where I think sort of the bigger changes are, are we're starting to see is that you're seeing both on the, the, the fracturing of the internet, but also fracturing of the of the the software stacks and the hardware that's being that will be driving you know, the, the, these technologies from different countries, and so it's even you know, from a splinter net. I feel like it's evolving into more of a two different techno spheres that kind of you encapsulates the broader divisions that are going on on the technology front, but also encapsulating the, the internet divisions. And so it really is very much so along geopolitical lines, and you know, it's just, you know, something we've talked about in the past you know, with the, the rise of digital authoritarianism, and so mm -hmm. the use of you know, by the various authoritarian leaders to leverage the internet for internet control and leveraging the technology for that, it, albeit from a surveillance state to disinformation to perhaps enabling some sorts of backdoors through various kinds of technologies. There's really a broad range of, of tools that the digital authoritarians are using. And so that continues. And that's, a, you know, largely driven by the Chinese model, the Russian model. And it's, that's permeating through to different countries across each of the regions across the globe. And for a while there wasn't much of a democratic model, hmm. I would argue, and until lately, you know, on the one hand, as far as where privacy con is concerned, Europe's GDPR was, is basically the, you know, the, the main global counterweight as far as how to protect data, but that's starting to emerge. And so the, the example that, I, that I'm keeping an eye on and, and want to, um, that I think might be indicative of emerging democratic collaboration would be the, the pact that the UK pushed forward about a month ago, I think, on a five, you know, creating a 5G pack to help strengthen the trust within supply chains, the technology supply chains or the digital supply chains, if you will, and ensuring that the, the technologies building into those, the digital supply chains are from trusted countries. And so you know, the focus for that is to reach out to you know, coordinate with 10 democratic countries and one release you know, reliance on various Chinese technologies that may be untrusted, but then also to build up their own domestic capabilities as well. And... On days I try, that I'm hopeful in this area, a lot of it focuses on that kind of collaboration that we're starting to see across democracies and trying to create more of a trusted environment to 
at least you know head towards some of those aspirations of what the internet was supposed to be as far as free flowing information, but still having you know, maintaining some security within it. And so we will we'll see what happens with that. But I think it's it's also a nice counterweight to you know, the rising economic nationalism that we see and you know concerns about you know everyone every country going off on their own, which is not the best way to uh, you know to handle all the, the the global challenges that we have right now. So. I, I think we will hopefully you know, continue to see some more collaboration in that area, and I think that will be an interesting trend to keep an eye on and could have a very large impact to counter some of the, the more negative trends that we're seeing going on in cybersecurity. Yeah, I mean, is it, is it fair to describe it almost as, as like a, a recoil, a reaction of, of uh, I feel like in some ways things were rolling along and, and in a way um, the democracies sort of took their eye off the ball for a little while as 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 so many of the the benefits things we got used to with the connectivity of the internet and and global commerce and all those sorts of things and the exchange of information and then um it, it's sort of been a like i say a recoil is is the image i have in my mind is is that a, a fair description yeah i think it is and i think it's also that you know whether it's a recoil or whether i mean i, I like the analogy of you know, taking the eye off the ball i mean really for quite some time, it was just assumed that the internet would provide, you know, only had, uh, you know, good ends and means going along with it. And if mm-hmm. you think about because especially if you think about the Arab Spring now, and, you know, that, you know, almost a decade ago, uh, right. or in some cases, you know, people looked at the Arab Spring and, and saw, look at what social media can do. You know, it can give voice to people who didn't have a voice before. And there certainly was an element of that. And, that, and that's sort of, those are the aspirations on which the internet was built. But it, Ignore the fact that oh, you know, these tools are also available to those who don't have good intentions and can also be used for suppression and through disinformation and actually to to crush those those same voices. And so that dual use nature of of the internet, I think, was just ignored. And so, you know, in some regards, you can say maybe the 2016 U.S. election was some level of a wake up call for democracies. But you know, even then, you know, Russia and other countries had been inter- interfering in in elections for you know years before that and, and continue to do so. So. Democracies, I think, really are just starting to see how much their dependence on both technologies from other countries, but also on some of the that that fact that they hadn't built in some of these guardrails. You know, that that's where the norms mm-hmm. and the policies come to place. That they kind of just you know, forgot about building some of those. And at the time, you know, for a while, you know, especially if you think about norms and cyber norms and the proper rules of the road for behavior in that, you know, there were plenty of efforts that went through the UN again over over the last decade, and you know, they basically fell apart. Due to these divisions that you know that I was talking about, as far as you know, Russia and China and say Cuba on one hand, and then democracies on the other, and I think that was one of those, looking at those norms discussions are almost a, a precursor to where we see things going now. And the difference is, it's not just you know a discussion at the UN; it's, it's actually we're seeing it play out uh, through the technologies that we have and through the data that we have access to, and and just how governments are, are handling themselves. Hmm. Yeah, it really is uh, fascinating to watch. It's uh, in interesting times for sure. Um, Andrea Little-Limbago, thanks for joining us. Great, thank you. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. 
Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.